she works at the Pioneering Stimulant Treatment Program based at St Vincent's Hospital, Sydney. She has more than 35 years' experience working with clients using alcohol and other drugs as a counsellor, caseworker and clinical services manager. Um, she's an enthusiastic teacher of alcohol and other drugs, mental health and counselling students. Her work experience includes 15 years working in prisons in New South Wales and the ACT. Um, Annabelle is providing insights into the treatments at St Vincent's Hospital Stimulant Treatment Program. Please welcome Annabelle Mayo. Hello, that sounds better to me. Does it sound better to you? Good. Um, I'm very delighted to be here today and I'm really delighted to know that there are um, nurses who, who are working in drug and alcohol and nurses who are mental health nurses. Could you guys show me how many drug and alcohol nurses are here? Yay, how many mental health nurses? Brilliant, fantastic. One of the beautiful things about ICE, if there is a beautiful thing, is that it's bringing you guys together. And I think it's a really important and progressive thing for health generally. I'd like to echo the comments of uh, earlier speakers in acknowledging uh, the land, that the land on which we're presenting this today um, is the land of the Gadigal people of our nation. And I, in the tradition of St Vincent's, am very committed to paying my respects to the elders, past and present. And I'd like to say that there is an indigenous flavour to the final um, comment that I will make when I finish talking in a long time from now um, about a therapeutic approach that we might all be taking. To me, it's quite exciting. I'll, I'll leave you to wait for that. Um, some of the stuff that will be coming up on my slides, I think uh, both Judith and Josie have addressed. So I'll try to scoot through those a bit more quickly. Um, all right, let's, let's start. Uh, let me drive this thing. Am I pointing it here? Okay, here's the villain. Um, Methylamphetamine, or methamphetamine for short, because why have an extra syllable if you don't need it? It's a synthetic stimulant drug, and that's a really important thing to identify. Um, an amphetamine type stimulant. Now, amphetamines are naturally present in our body, or um, if you remember all your nursing training, um, uh, phenylethylamine, it's a, a foundational structure that covers a number of very important neurotransmitters in the brain. Um, dopamine, for, for example, um, adrenaline and noradrenaline, and your own natural speed, PEA, which you have floating around in your head. And which you will get a, a little bit of pleasure from every time you have some chocolate. Right, more about that later. Um, it certainly comes in many forms, as Josie pointed out, and I thought I'd show you the little diagram here. And it's a, an important diagram because there are two aspects to this molecule. There's a right-hand part of the molecule and a left-hand part of the molecule. 
um, dextro and levo. And in some treatment, um, in some medication, some pharmacotherapy, um, people are being provided with the dextro, some people are being provided with the levo, and some are being provided with an artificially concocted mix of the two. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, but it is, it is those two branches that we're quite interested in in terms of the medication or possible medication. Did you like this? Crisis. Isn't that clever? Um, my family will be appalled that I've put that up there. I'll say that's very typical of me. Um, certainly the discussion at the moment is, if you see those words I've got down there on the right-hand side, um, epidemic, scourge, plague, um, these words seem to be recycled over and over again. Um, the concern could be how helpful using this um, dramatic language is to helping, firstly, people not go there and not start using, or people who are in and around and are currently experimenting, and the last group, which people are who are um, quite heavily committed to their substance use. Um, I want to make a point here, I think it's really significant, that this is a dreadful problem for people who are feeling um, overwhelmed by their amphetamine use. Family members suffer dreadfully. I know because I speak to them on the phone. But I want it to be in a context of overall health. And I want to remind you, as Josie did, that alcohol is still our major substance use problem. I want to remind you all that there's an emerging problem that may dwarf ice, and that is the overprescription of meds, the misuse of meds, and that would involve um, opiate-type medications, benzos, and increasingly psych meds. Um, you are all in a really prime position to be watchful and to advocate for patients about um, whether you think the level of medication they're receiving is helpful. I'd also like to highlight that yesterday was Are You, Are you OK Day, and seven people a day in this country end their lives from their um, mental health um, crisis that goes unsupported or unresolved. So I'd like to, to talk about this in, a, in an appropriate health context. And that's to say, my summary of it, and I leave you to, to form your own conclusions, is that it is problematic. Um, it's one of several important health problems. I'd like to see us negotiating very enthusiastically. Okay, so um, ATS, amphetamine-type stimulants, you might, might see that little abbreviation through a lot of the literature. Um, I'm using it to save space. Second most widely used illicit drug in the world. Humans love their stimulants. The most widely used drug of any kind in the world is caffeine, or members of the xanthine family. It is, it's a stimulant drug. You've probably had some for morning tea. 
There are many different substances around the world, and I'll identify a few further along, that are stimulant-type substances. But this is one that has been made illegal. Not for very long. It wasn't so long ago where it wasn't illegal at all. And we certainly prescribe it as a medication in some circumstances. In 2014, they decided that um, a, a figure was hard to um, assess for stimulant users, for, for amphetamine speed or um, ice users. And they came at figures of 13.9 million to 54.8 million. So there's a big gap there, hard to assess. As was mentioned earlier, we have about 2% of our population using. That's not to say more people haven't tried, and the figure is um, currently an estimate that one in 10 adults has had amphetamines. Uh, whether they've used them illegally or as part of some prescription regime, um, I'm not sure. But, but people have experienced stimulant use. Um, and the Illicit Drug Reporting um, Information Service, which does exciting things, I, I, I have heard, and I don't know this for sure, if they're basically anal analysing sewerage output to see what it is we're all using. Because we're not going to tell the truth about it, so it's a very clever way to find out what people are actually using. Um, so we're finding out that there is a gradual increase in ice. And I want to really make sure that you um, have it fully clear in your head that speed and ice are essentially the same substance. What we're talking about is a difference in purity. And it's sometimes form. So most often people will, uh, would have purchased speed in the form of uh, powder. Less often in Australia, they would be looking at base, which is um, a putty-like substance, or as one of my clients affectionately refers to it, snot. Um, that's what happens when you say that word. Um, and ice is a much more um, pure form. So as has been mentioned before, speed gets cut with all sorts of things. One of the less harmful things it gets cut with is glucose. Uh, but glucose is also um, a potential stimulant, and so what you might have is a potentiating effect with the um, amphetamine and the sugars. Generally, what we're looking at is if you're taking a stronger, purer drug, there's a perception that there's going to be an increased harm, and that's what we're worried about. It looks like at the moment about 10% of people who are in that problematic use category are accessing some form of treatment. One of the questions that I'm going to put to you is, are we um, making that treatment appropriate for that group of users? And I hope at the STP where I work at St Vincent's, um, we're doing exactly that. But we'll talk a bit more about that later. Um, so it's the preferred amphetamine now in Australia. More people are using ice than speed. And that's partially because speed is not so available. Many people basically who were speed users in the past are now ice users because it's what they can get. Um, purer and cheaper. So the same amount of money that you would pay 
Um, Josie mentioned $40, $40-$50 for a point, which is a tenth of a gram. Um, people um, were paying about that same amount of money for a similar amount of speed. So more bang for your buck if you're a user. And more people are smoking it. There's a perception in some users that smoking is less harmful than injecting. We've, we've certainly raised the alarm about um, problems with injecting drug use and the risks. So some of my clients will say to me, well, I smoke it so it's safer. That's their, their belief about their use. Um, what are the growing harms? And what, what, what are we seeing as um, risky outcomes? Um, Josie's mentioned, and I think it's really important, the um, risks to women in pregnancy and, and, and the developing child. But um, we've got more people generally coming to drug and alcohol treatment. Do we have more facilities to treat those people? For the most part, no, we don't. There will be a slight increase in New South Wales in services available to stimulant users, which is quite exciting. Um, but we really don't have enough people to provide the support that, that our clients need. Okay. Sorry. Um, so, the other thing is, and you've heard already this morning, there's an increase in the number of ambulance call-outs. People are not quite sure what to do, especially if people are um, experiencing psychosis. That's the more visible and dramatic side of ice use. What I want to tell you about is that someone its temperature is dangerously high, or they're fitting, or they're having um, a heart attack or stroke and they're only in their 20s, I, I think that is a probably quite a dramatic and, and risky, um, well, uh, difficult for a, a passerby or a family member to deal with that, and, and so an ambulance is going to be increasingly called to deal with that side of the equation as well. Interestingly, it's not just an urban problem. One of our big concerns is how are we addressing regional drug use. Many country towns where people have less than adequate levels of employment for young people, for instance, have to some extent come to live with what we call an ice economy. Young people in that town are using drugs because what else is there to do? running around after the drugs gives them some sort of activity and meaning in their lives. And if they work it right, they can actually make a few dollars out of it to survive. So that's quite a different dynamic to what you might see in the city sometimes. Is there much help there? At the moment, no. Um, we're hoping to change that. We certainly have telephone calls from all over the state at the STP. Um, people ringing from, um, even from the ACT, wanting to know how they're going to get help for, their, for themselves or family. More hospital presentations. Uh, so it's quite, people are brought in, if there's more ambulances, there are more ED um, events, and staff in EDs are often not well resourced enough to support people. Anyone here work in ED at the moment? Okay, only a couple. Um, one of the things that we're very concerned about at the moment is we're about to start training ED staff and PEC staff in ways that they can support 
users better. I'll give you a little example that's quite practical. Many ICE users are dehydrated. When they come in, they might be sitting waiting for some time, they're getting further dehydrated. I don't know about you, but if I'm dehydrated, my mood isn't all that good. I'm a little bit scratchy and grumpy. Um, if you want to accelerate that, take someone who hasn't drunk water maybe for seven or eight hours. Um, certainly there's protocols around what you would allow a person coming to ED to have in terms of food and, and water, but it's something to think about when this person comes in. Um, how hydrated are they? Would their behaviour, mood be improved if you could get some IV fluids in? So this is not something I can answer for you in any kind of definitive way with any one patient, but I'd invite you to think about things like that. It's very simple, basic. It doesn't seem like dramatic medicine, but it's actually a very important thing that you can do. When people arrive into the stimulant program, the first thing we do is offer them a glass of water. We do it for a number of reasons. Some of them are sneaky. One, it's a gesture. It's a psychological gesture. It's a gesture of service. People are often coming in feeling very, very bad about themselves. And to have the counsellor offer them that hospitality to welcome them will reduce a lot of their stress. It makes them feel better immediately. So that, that's quite a positive thing right from the start. And at some kind of subconscious level, an ICE user who is so often dehydrated senses that we have some understanding of what it's like to be an ICE user. We're, we're meeting them at, at some level that they understand. Um, so something as simple as a glass of water, doesn't cost a lot, certainly within the realm of what you guys can advocate for and offer. Okay. Um, lastly, one of the big, big concerns, that all this is very costly. It's not just costly in terms of AMBOs, in terms of um, EDs, but hugely problematic in, as far as the legal system is concerned. The um, Australian Crime Commission just put out a big report describing the meth market. So if you're, anyone's interested in looking at it, it gives quite a comprehensive discussion of where the meth's coming from, approximately half made here, uh, another half imported from places as diverse as China and Brazil, Mexico. Um, quite a thriving industry. Um, so this is very costly to police. It's very costly to keep locking people up because of their use and because of the offences they commit while they're using. Right. One of the problems in treating stimulant users is that for so long, the focus in drug and alcohol, as many of you would know, has been on the central nervous system depressants. Alcohol, uh, to a lesser extent cannabis, and certainly, certainly on, on the use of opiates. And this has had quite, a, um, quite an impact on how we've been treating people because there's an identification of a drug user that doesn't often match our clients. Some of our clients are professional people. They don't identify with the people they see coming in and out of the methadone clinic. 
they wouldn't access drug and alcohol treatment. Similarly, if you go to a detox, so detoxes um, are pretty much set up for a turnaround from heavy drinking or from um, heroin use, and you get about a five-day stay. If you're going to be really seriously supporting a nice user who wants to detox, they need to be there 10 days to two weeks. I'm very heartened to see that um, in the case of uh, Ward 64 at Concord, they have now um, identified that as a reason to change the length of stay and, and other services are starting to, to follow through. We put people in detox all the time and they're not detoxed when they are put back out on the street. They're better, they're a lot better than they were when they went in, but they're not ready to go back to the street. It's a bit of a waste of money. Um, Stimulants, as I said, are used every day around the world. I talked about caffeine, um, other xanthine. So xanthine is the caffeine family, and if anyone here like energy drinks, they've got guarana in or mateen. Those are, are two caffeine-like substances, uh, very popular. Most people wouldn't know that after caffeine, alcohol and tobacco, the fourth biggest um, psychoactive substance that's used recreationally in the world is betel nut. So if you've been to India or Bangladesh or Pakistan, you will see that it's, a, it's for a lot of people, chewing betel nut is like an after-dinner mint. Uh, a mild stimulant, uh, but with huge health consequences, mouth and throat cancers among them. Um, but most, we, we, we do live in a bit of a political and, and a cultural bubble here when it comes to our understanding of what substances people use. Kratom. Kratom is used in places like Thailand. Even people who grow poppies in the poppy fields prefer Kratom. Kratom is a stimulant. Why we, if you want to work hard all day in the hot sun, it helps to have a stimulant, not, a, not an opiate. Cat. So cat, the whole of the Middle East, Central Asia, parts of Africa, um, use cat, which is another um, stimulant. Sugar, the unmentionable. Sugar is a highly active stimulant drug that we use every day. It acts directly on glutamate um, in the brain, which pretty much is the main signal for all stimulants. Uh, I, I think, much as I do love a little bit of sugar in my biscuits or cakes or whatever, that as time goes on we might feel inclined to change our eating to reduce the amount of sugar we use. I think it's important to remember also that cocaine and amphetamine, which are to some extent vilified as, as illegal substances, are still prescribed in certain circumstances to people. We give children um, amphetamines. I've had people who've come in as clients or to the service who've been on some form of prescribed amphetamine or something like methylphenidate, which is Ritalin, since they were four. So if ice is all that bad, and it is, um, there's another way of looking at amphetamines that some people think is not so bad, and that's confusing. 
It's confusing to the public. It's confusing to the potential user. Finally, psychostimulants are seen as having a role in improving performance. And the use of psychostimulants of all kinds has been much more tolerated until recently than opiates or alcohol, or tobacco for that matter. I think it's really important, having worked in a jail, to say that for years before anyone really ever heard of ICE, I was seeing people incarcerated for psychosis from their speed use. It didn't really come up very much in the media that the person was on amphetamines. They might say the person was on drugs, but there was no um, desire, there was no narrative to separate out amphetamines as a cause of the behaviour. Uh, maybe there should have been, I don't know. But I have to wonder if there isn't another, um, another agenda somewhere to make ICE the big villain. And quite interestingly, that agenda, it has been suggested to me by some of my clients, is very desirable from the point of view of the dealers. ICE is getting the best advertising and promotion that you could possibly want. If I'm telling you everyone out there is using it, it's a big risk, I'm going to invite some people to be curious about why so many people are using it. So to some extent, education is great, getting a message of harm out there is great, but how we do it is really important because we don't want to make people think it's such a big thing that it's worth being curious about. So why was it's tolerated up to now. And I think it's because there have been many people in many industries who've seen it as a way of supporting work. Truck drivers, ridiculous schedule that is required for them to be moved from place A to B. They're very tired. They need energy to lift and move. Sitting behind a, the wheel of a vehicle, heavy vehicle for hours on end, um, requires a degree of focus that most people can't sustain. Certainly, caffeine has been one of the things that drivers have used to help themselves, but it's only been a short leap from there that a number of drivers have felt encouraged or even required in some way to use amphetamine to get through their day. We certainly know it's changed now, thank goodness, for every time you get on a plane, everyone's drug and alcohol tested. But for a long time, pilots were using amphetamines. I've had clients who have had jobs like working on a stock exchange and staying up all night day trading. And they felt pressured to keep awake for their job. And so they might have started off with caffeine and then someone said, well, look, here's a little pill you can have. It will really help. So I think there's been this idea of you can't work too long and too hard. And so amphetamines, to some extent, have been a bit invisible up to now. I'm hoping that um, people advocating for fairer work conditions will be playing a really big role in minimising somebody's need to be using amphetamines in the workplace. OK. Most people don't know how long amphetamines have been around. They were actually invented in the early 1800s and the crystalline form in the late 1800s. 
Nobody much knew what to do with it until the 1920s when it was very enthusiastically handed out for people with asthma. People with asthma have had a bad go. They got um, amphetamines in the 50s that were given cigarettes to smoke because it was going to help their lungs. Um, so um, that, that lasted for quite a while. The next use of it was in the, in the war. And this probably was the use that accelerated its um, people's awareness of it. Um, Adolf Hitler reportedly loved amphetamine and used it to help him keep going as he busily ran the Third Reich. Um, one of his favourite ways, he wasn't too keen on injecting, which was how he normally had it, but he loved to have it in chocolates. And, and, and of course, because um, I've told you that chocolate naturally has um, a, an amphetamine that our body recognises, it's probably a pretty damn good way to have your amphetamines. Um, and apparently he used to hand them out in chocolates to his pilots, because if you need the Luftwaffe to be flying late into the night, um, then that's a very helpful uh, little chemical way of doing it. Was the was Germany the only country that used amphetamines during World War II? No. Uh, we certainly have very good literature about both um, the US and the UK providing amphetamine type um, uh, stimulant support to um, pilots and to uh, commandos. Um, I can't really comment on what the current uh, military forces around the world do or don't offer to people. They give them supplements. So, um, because I think it's a state secret what's in the supplement, I'm guessing that, that some, um, some military services around the world are still giving some sort of amphetamine to um, their servicemen. Right. Um, a lot of people have had a, a period of fondness for um, methamphetamine's cousin, another amphetamine, MDMA or ecstasy. I always love it when my clients have come and say, I've tried ecstasy and I've tried MDMA and I've had E. <laughs> and, um, you know, it breaks my heart to say it's the same substance. Um, but they may have had it in a tablet form and they may have had it in a liquid form and it's, it seemed different in some way. Um, it's quite problematic. It's been problematic because it's very often been given out in pill form. And I can't tell you how many people have told me, well, it's all right, it's safe to use because it's a pill. When you tell them that somebody um, down in a sort of grungy basement somewhere with a pill press has put a whole lot of powdery substances together and created a pill, um, then they, they come to understand that it's not maybe pharmaceutical grade. One of the increasing issues has been that as the MDMA has become less available and more expensive, people who are buying ecstasy in the idea that it's a less harmful substance to party with than ice are not realising that in that tablet they're buying, um, it's an increasingly, um, increasingly made up of methamphetamine and not any MDMA in it at all or very little. Um, so if you do know people out there who, who like their E, you might suggest to them that um, it might not be what they think they're getting. 
Okay, um, some of you might have seen this, so I'm going to try and show it to you now. It was on earlier this week, but I think it's really important to sort of wind up the, the sort of more political discussion about how we're addressing ice in the community. So I'm going to, it's a, it's a few minutes, we're going to try and play it. Apologies if any of you saw it. I'm feeling bad now, who's seen it already? Couple of people. Okay, good. Australia, Not feeling we're so in bad. the middle of an ice epidemic, or at the very least, an epidemic of people saying there's an ice epidemic. The state's ice epidemic has taken a worrying new turn. Tackle the ice epidemic. Tackle the ice epidemic. Australia's ice drug epidemic. I believe that guy because he's walking. <laughs> So far this year, the federal government has introduced several measures to combat this, including a dob-in-a-dealer hotline, the National Ice Task Force, and most importantly, from our perspective, an $11 million ad campaign. Here's the TV commercial at the centre of it. There's cold Come on, that may be the wrong ice ad. This is a serious topic, it's this one. As an emergency doctor, I've seen how ice is destroying lives. Do you finish that report? I've seen people who can't sleep for days. People smoke it, not realising it can be so addictive. No, Nick, please, son. Ice tears families apart. I'm going out. No, Nick. Get off! Some ice users dig at their skin, feeling like bugs are crawling underneath. And then there are the psychotic reactions. This can happen any time you use it. Ice destroys lives. Don't let it destroy yours. Wow, worst episode of Offspring ever. <laughs> that ad had it all. Doctors, cops, mothers, kids, violence, blood and gore. There was only one thing missing, D. Ice. Why wouldn't you put the drug in the ad? There's actually a bit of evidence that shows that um, it can have the opposite effect. There's a saying in advertising, sometimes people don't know what they want until you show it to them. Um, and, and that particularly works with drugs. In a 2008 study with teenagers, teenagers who'd seen anti-drug ads were more curious about drugs than teenagers who hadn't. And curiosity for teenagers is a really powerful motivator because they are inherently risk takers and they seek sensation. Oh no, and I've been feeding my kids whiskers and that makes them inquisitive. <laughs> on this, uh, that, that effect often referred to as priming, but the other thing is it can trigger usage. I've done quite a lot of research in and around this, uh, this category, and we once had uh, groups in our office, so ICE uh, users in our office, and we were showing them potential campaigns, and then halfway through showing the work, the fire alarm went off and we were evacuated out of the building. What had happened, because one of the users, the ads were so graphic with the ICE that it triggered his usage, and he yeah. went into the toilet, lit up, and set the alarm system off in the building. It's very difficult to market to them and the majority of these ads are not aimed at ICE users. No, and you, you do look when you're creating a campaign, you decide are we doing a product demonstration or are we not? Mm. Are we going to show our product and show how amazing it is or not? This is not a product demonstration <laughs> ad. Um, it's, this ad was created to provide parents with a tool to start the conversation with their children. We don't need to be showing 14 year olds how to smoke a crack pipe. It's just the same as the in tobacco ads. So in anti-smoking ads, you don't have a cigarette being lit up because that makes smokers go and light up. Yeah. So and that is obviously on a mass scale because you know we've got 20% of the population smoking cigarettes. 98% of the population do not use ice. However, it's the same, if you like, advertising technique 
If you show the act, it will promote the act. Yeah, we did some ethnography research with ISIS. So we go to their house and stay with them for a period of time. And one of the shocking things I saw is at the time, the campaign that was running was the scab, which is used a lot in, in ICE advertising. It's the, it's the grim scab that we, they had built posters for the campaign. They had the posters up in their garage. Yeah. They had no problem with the posters. In fact, they quite liked the posters. Wow. Uh, the campaign first aired in May this year on Switzer, a Sky News show about business. It's also aired many times during an MTV program called Club Bangers. <laughs> Lauren, what's the most effective way to target that elusive ICE demographic? Finance news or Club Bangers? <laughs> When you're identifying your targets, there's, there's lots of different layers to that. You start with the demographics of that. So in this instance, this was targeting 14 to 25-year-olds, predominantly males and their parents. The next layer is the behavioural layer. So this ad needs to be talking to people who are at risk of being in a situation where ICE is going to be presented to them and they're most likely going to say yes. That at-risk category is so, so small. Um, we just find it's, it's going to be very hard to target. But when we're talking specifically to 14 to 25 year olds, they are heavy mobile users and heavy social media users. So what we need to be doing to that category is always, sorry, to that demographic, is always to be giving them some content that is of interest to them and they will share it. No one will share this commercial. If you had their people they respected and idolised, musicians and actors and sports people saying it's not cool and gave them a great soundtrack at the back of it, that is something they're going to listen to, they're going to love it and they're going to share it. Is it a budget thing, Russell? Because it is only $11 million yeah. and if the, pro if the problem is as big as the newspaper headlines would have you believe, That's right. isn't $11 million for a whole campaign a tiny amount it, of money? It, it is. And it's, to me, it's a very, this, I'm not, it's a very interesting balancing act because yes, I think there is a need to advertise. Um, and in particular, as you say, it's not really aimed at the user. It's, it's aimed at friends and family and close people close by to try and assist. That's where I think that this can work. But how much money should you spend when you actually look at the numbers? Because 11 million, you're right, Will, 11 million is not a lot of money for government expenditure on what you want, you know, behaviour change and society change. If the ad seems a bit familiar, it's because it's a scene-by-scene -scene remake of this 2007 version. That guy is still about to get the sack. He still doesn't treat his mum very well, and now this woman thinks there are bugs under her skin. Surely if the ad had worked the first time, we wouldn't be in the middle of an ice epidemic now. Russell, why make the same ad? Well, because they would have lots of evidence to say that it's had some success. And of course, governments are risk averse. It's very hard to get something new through a government. Uh, that is a new advertising idea. The problem that uh, I've got, I can't understand why they haven't done this the second time, they didn't do it the first time, is actually get some action at the end of the commercial. Like, what, what can I do? Who do I call? Who can I speak to? That to me is the bit that's absolutely missing and I'm surprised that that hasn't been put into the remake, you know, the second, the second version. Uh, Todd, what's the government doing? Looking good or solving the problem? Or does it have to be both? I think they're doing both. I think they need to be seen to be doing something. And, and if advertising can do many things, it cannot solve the ice problem. Uh, in fact, it's, but unfortunately we put the money and the energy into that because it's the most visible thing that we're doing. Government advertising is a lever, are levers used by the government for their popularity. You wouldn't know it from Australian television, but there are other ways to make a drug ad. Check out this recent ad from Spain. Create an opinion, your opinion. One more kilometre, one more length, one more fall. Create something that only you can do, something for which you need others, or that you can do alone. Create character, strength, pride. 
create a failure, but say, I'll do this. Try. Create a why not. A just because. Create a place to be. Create a nonsense. Create what you like, but create something. Because the more things you create in your life, the less room is left for drugs. Yeah, because the one thing we know about creative people is that none of them are on drugs. <laughs> An ad that shows what might happen if you don't take drugs, rather than one that shows what might happen if you do. Lauren, would that approach work in Australia? Every drug has a different at-risk group and a completely different message and a completely different way of speaking to them. If we're talking about prescription medication abuse or we're talking about ICE, completely different markets and a very, very different message, Putting, every, putting all drugs into one ad is impossible. But the notion of doing positive messages and showing an alternative to drugs rather than you will, this will happen to you if you use them, I think is, is, has potential. Going positive can be a high-wire act, as the Partnership for a Drug-Free America found out in the late 90s when it released what I think is safe to say officially the catchiest anti-meth jingle of all time. Look at me, busy as a bee. Where'd I get all this energy? I don't sleep and I don't eat, but I've got the cleanest house on the street. Get these hairs all out of my face. Get these bugs all out of my place. One more hit, no time to waste. I've never thought I'd say this, but Ice Ice Baby is now my second favorite song about us. That's all for tonight. Please thank our panel, Russell, Lauren, Dee and Todd. I don't know. What did you think about that? Has anyone got any views that uh, something that's popped up in your head that you might like to share before we leap on to the next bit? All right. Well, I'm happy to talk to you afterwards. All right, let's go to the next... Okay, so the next section of what I want to talk to you about before eventually moving on to treatment, which is my, my, um, the most important thing I want to talk to you about today, I want to just take you back into um, something that I hope you might find useful in terms of understanding, some, somewhere back into the biology of all of it. The public will perceive that as nurses, you have knowledge about the brain and body. Psychoeducation or education about um, what's happening in our brains and bodies is something that's not really generally available to people. It's there on, on the net if you want to look at Dr. Google, but if you talk to people in the pub or around the corner, they don't actually know a lot about their bodies. They don't know a lot about their brains. They don't have much of a clue of what it is they put into their bodies or their brains. So any interest that you might have in furthering your own knowledge and, and being a good translator or explainer of that knowledge to people you come across with when you're treating them is so valuable, it's so empowering and it helps people make sensible decisions about their life. So one of the things I wanted to show you is a little um, thing that's on the net that I often use as part of psychoeducation with my clients. Not all of them obviously, but one of many techniques and it's a little refresher for you um, so I might just dive into it um, 
This is um, the Spanish Department of Health put up this website. Um, it's called Love My Spanish Accent, which I'm about to produce for you. Drogas y Cerebro. And I can say it like that because one of my colleagues is Spanish speaking and he made me um, pronounce it about 20 times to get it right. Um, and it's a wonderful resource, not just for ICE, but for drugs generally that you might look at and use or you might direct people to, to look at it, to understand how a particular drug works in the brain. Okay, let's dive in. just taking a while to load. Um, one, one of the reasons this is a particularly good resource is it's available in any number of languages as you will see, but the animations or the, or the slides rather um, are fairly self-explanatory. I've actually looked at many um, wonderful animations of, of neurons and things like this, but this is my favourite in terms of simple explanation. It's loading. Is it? We've got a problem. <gasps> okay. Okay. We might. We might. We might move on then, and um, if we can't get it. No. Okay. All right. Maybe something you can look at for yourself. Basically, just to recap. All the action in the brain is at the level of the synapse. So go back to your um, little diagram that's no doubt carved into your head from your study days of the neuron and think about all the action happening in the synaptic cleft that's the gap between one neuron and another. So methamphetamine uses three of five possible techniques to um, pass on the message of stimulation. It increases the process whereby all the neurotransmitters um, are ejected from the vesicles and into the synaptic cleft in a spasm. So instead of a few trickling out across the cleft to the post-synaptic receptor, um, they explode and the, and the neuron is emptied out of all those neurotransmitters. So there's a huge, huge bombardment on the neighbouring neuron. Another thing that happens is the process of reuptake is blocked. So that means, again, those, those neurotransmitters will bombard the postsynaptic receptors over and over again. And finally, the little garbage trucks in the synapse, the monoamine oxidases, that come to clean everything up nicely, they are blocked. So there's no clean-up process. And it's that last process which differentiates cocaine's action in the brain and methamphetamine. Otherwise quite identical. Cocaine is much more short-acting and ice is longer-acting. So 
you're lucky if you get a few hours out of some cocaine, but if you take ice, you can be buzzing along all day. I really encourage you to have a look at that website. Um, if you want to make a note of it. Okay, um, we've already talked quite a bit about the effects. Um, and most of the resources that are easily available on the web, there's Your Room, which is a website that Addis produces. There are fact sheets from the health department, both state and federal, that really itemise all the things that you're looking for um, to find out if people are reacting very badly to their ice use. So I won't go and spend too much time looking at all of those, but we're looking at physical and psychological responses. One of the most significant things about ice use is that there are impacts when the person first uses and then there are other impacts that are going to occur in withdrawal. In that way, um, some weird similarities to alcohol. So as nurses, you would know that alcohol, overuse of alcohol is really risky right at the, at the time people are doing it. You know, that, that you can absolutely poison yourself by drinking too much alcohol. But if you are a regular heavy drinker, that phase of, of withdrawal from the alcohol use is highly risky. So a couple of days after uh, a person's been drinking heavily, um, their health is at risk. They're at risk of seizure. They're at risk of a number of um, things just shutting down in their body. Similarly, ice seems to have a long um, window for causing problems with people. The withdrawal is as uncomfortable as the high is good. In fact, probably more so. And it takes a long time for people to really withdraw. It might surprise you, it would certainly surprise the general public, I think, that people walk into our service and say, I have a really bad problem with ice, I use it once a fortnight. We're so conditioned to that model of, of daily use of the, of the heroin addict or the, or the, or the alcoholic. But fortnightly use can be problematic. We even have people who have monthly use who are concerned by it. Um, we certainly have daily users, but what we mostly have is binge users. So um, people may, in effect, and this is a weird thing about ice, be experiencing the withdrawal and the intoxication at the same time because of the way it acts in the body. Very confusing. Um, people will not be happy they're often in a place that's really hard to reach them with conversation or with anything. And certainly, there are things that people can do to help the person who is in withdrawal and has used that are so poorly valued, it, it, it takes my breath away. I've already talked about the importance of hydration. I can't really understand why there isn't more prominence given to sleep. Most ICE users have been up for three days. We have fabulous information now about what functions sleep um, allows our brains and bodies to do. Only last year, we definitively um, discovered by use of MRI scans that it's only when you're asleep that the garbage is effectively put out of your brain. Your brain has no lymphatic system, and the clearance of all the little bits of gunk sticking to all those neurons only happens in sleep. 
no other time. The neurons contract, there's kind of a little shimmying effect, there's a tide of um, cerebrospinal fluid that cleans off each neuron and it's carried away out of your system. If you're not sleeping for three and four days at a time, there's a big pileup of garbage in your brain. And a little thing like sleep, sometimes people sleep for more than a day when they're, they're coming down. But in terms of healthcare and support, drug and alcohol treatment, mental health treatment, for God's sake, give them a bed, give them a corner to sleep and sleep it off. It, it might be the very best thing you can do in terms of um, supporting their health. And as I say that, I, I, I can hear admin people in, in hospitals everywhere with their discharge things saying, no, no, we don't want anyone to sleep here or stay here. Get them out very quickly. Uh, but then again, I, I put it to you, when you observe this with people, um, to advocate for what you think is a healthy response. Um, and many of the people you see just do need a good sleep. The other thing that people don't have is very often amphetamines have um, reduced their appetite and they haven't eaten. One of the effects of taking amphetamines is that after using a huge amount of glucose in the brain as part of the excitement, the, the brain is completely depleted of glucose. This is not a bad, this is not a good place for a brain to be. So as soon as the person is able to start eating, the better because their brain is going to be functioning better, their body is going to be functioning better. So here we have um, hydration, sleep and food. I don't think any of these things really rate high on the medical agenda or the discussion. They're taken for granted. But a really important thing for all of you, you people to know as you give that care that, that is so fabulous to, to people who come in who need your help. Um, very simple, very inexpensive things. Before I, I move out of this thing, I want to um, talk about the future too. I want you to be observant because things change all the time. There are, there are fads and fashions. Who knew that there would be this ice epidemic back in 1995? Who, who could have guessed it? So I want to highlight the fact that people are creatively trying to find new and different ways to get high. And here are some of the things that have emerged. Will any of them take on in a big way? I don't know. But you are in a really good position to be observant. Firstly, um, I mentioned earlier on cat, which is a plant made into tea all through the Middle East that is a mild stimulant and very... Um, uh, very well used over centuries. That's been capitalised on by dealers and converted into different forms and mephedrone is, is one um, form in which people are increasingly um, taking this substance. You might have heard of meow on the street, you might have heard of bath salts. These are essentially cathinone type stimulants. Um, may or may not take off, who knows. Um, NBOMEs not such a problem in Australia because it's so easy to get ice here even though it's really expensive compared to other places. In Europe, in Ireland, Holland and a number of other places, there's a lot of lab-made variants of amphetamines. Um, one is called 2C and we've had a few cases reported of people having 
um, episodes of blindness. It's temporary, but taking this substance, which is very similar to ice, um, in, the, in, in terms of the party effect, people are actually ringing in saying, I haven't been able to see for a couple of days. Um, hasn't taken off in a big way yet. It's certainly bigger in Europe than it is here. Um, a barely discussed market is the bodybuilding and make your face and body beautiful market. Um, and certainly stimulants are being used to help people who want to boost their athletic performance and their, their, make their body beautiful. And some of these have been banned. So you can see Jack 3D, which is used um, in the slide here, that is now banned in, in Australia. But variants keep popping up. And, and basically, um, the idea is to keep you going longer, harder, and faster in your training regimes. I, I do know from um, working in the prisons that some of my clients who were uh, loved to go to gyms would get steroids, and they would also get stimulants as part of their um, their workout process. Caffeine powder. Has anyone even heard of this? It's deadly. And it has started to emerge in little places. Again, I don't know if it will take on or not, but it's far more deadly than any other substance. Um, you might have heard that a couple of years ago, uh, a woman in New Zealand died from drinking too much Coca-Cola. Um, and she, she died of caffeine poisoning. This is so lethal, a small amount um, will, will kill. So this is quite a dangerous substance, and it's it's alarming to hear it's popping up. People are sniffing it. Um, botanicals. Okay, so botanicals include a lot of things. Botanicals, there are so many plants out there in nature that can be boiled or has something done to them that make them into a drug. Um, one quite common um, botanical that's used with a number of other subjects is piperine, and piperine, for most of you, um, you will know is a name for pepper. Pepper is actually a wonderful substance. It, it, it boosts and augments the efficiency of many therapeutic substances. So if you like pepper on your food and you're taking some medication that you hope is doing you good, um, it's possible that pepper is going to make it work even better. Similarly, it's being used to accentuate the impacts of other plants that are being boiled up. More a problem in Europe, not yet a problem here. Hopefully it won't be. But I want you to think about the fact that people are endlessly creative and want to, to make people um, go to another place in terms of their, their consciousness, because people will buy these things. OK, so what are we going to do about it? First of all, I thought it would be very nice of me to invite you all to stand up and wiggle a bit. Shake it off, like Taylor Swift says, um, because you've been sitting down a long time. <laughs> Shake it off. It's very good for your um, post-traumatic stress, if any of you have it. Shaking it off, I can recommend it. Great PTSD treatment. Are you all feeling quite settled? I'll, I'll go on then. Okay, after scaring you with possibilities of some drugs you haven't even heard of, 
Um, I want to talk about harm minimisation. It drives, as you all know, everything we do in the drug and alcohol field. Demand reduction, supply reduction and harm reduction. Supposedly, um, customs and police are taking care of the um, supply. Harm reduction is what we all do. We, we, we give people access to things like safe injecting. We, we provide all sorts of ways, knowing that people will do what they do, to do it less harmfully. And that includes abstinence, to encourage and support people to be abstinent. So harm reduction is a very important part of what we do. I would argue that there's a more important part, long term, that's demand reduction. And I've already highlighted what I believe is your role as an educator of people. And my thought is that if nobody wants to use these substances, it would be very hard that, to have a market for them. Why would you bother to go all the, to all the trouble to, to make the ice or import it if nobody wanted to use it? So um, that's why I thought that ad was very good where young people were maybe offered some alternatives, ways to use their time. And a very positive part of treatment is not to be focusing on the substances, but to be focusing on other aspects of life that are enjoyable. And certainly in our counselling we do that. It's really important to understand the user. So many policies are driven from the top. They're driven by the dollar, they're driven by political expediency, they're, they're driven by structures that we've already got. It's really, really helpful to talk to the user. How did you get into this? Were there times that you thought you could have um, walked away from your drug use? What, what made the difference? What, what would have encouraged you to leave? I ask my clients this all the time and I get really great information which I use with other people. So your opportunities to have conversation with people um, will be very much appreciated by the user and will be very informative to you. It's also important because, um, as has been mentioned before, we want to reduce stigma. I can tell you that people who use drugs already feel bad enough about themselves. They don't need society making it worse. A lot of people who use drugs or who keep using drugs don't even understand why they're continuing to do it. They feel driven by some self-destructive demon, which is maybe more uh, of a curse to them than the actual substance. And so what they need, I believe, is our compassion, our support and our understanding. The shame the, the, the absolute mortification that I see in, in, in the faces of my clients um, stands in the way of any recovery. So the most important thing I can do is reduce that immediately, not buy into stigma, not buy into language junkies and other things that people uh, might use as a shorthand term. Understand the context of use. Is the person using in a short-term way? Are they making this a bit of a lifestyle habit? Are they a long-term user? I have a client who's been using for 40 years. I have other clients who only started a couple of months ago. Our oldest clients at the STP are in their 70s. It's really important to also um, hear what they have to say about their use and why they're using it. 
and to have a different sort of ear for the people who are coming in who are 18. There isn't one size fits all. Culture, I think I mentioned this before. You know, what happens if you grow up in a family and an environment where there's a bong on the kitchen table? Where your family um, are regularly, some member of your family is regularly partying um, in another dimension for the weekend. It becomes normalised. Or you grow up in a street where there's a drug dealer on every corner. It becomes part of your world. It's seen that the, the distance between you and the substance is a lot shorter. So it's really um, important to understand those kind of um, microcultural pressures that people have experienced. We have people who are, are ice users who might better be described as polydrug users. They might have started their career with opiates, got through that, and have moved on to a different experience. Most importantly of all, ice users very often use other substances to manage their ice use. And this is really important for you in treatment. It's not uncommon for someone to be up for three days with their ice use, but then want to go to sleep and they can't. So what they will use is benzos, alcohol, opiates, whatever they can get their hands on to, to manage themselves back to sleep. So very often, you're having a discussion with someone who's quite using quite a number of substances, not just, not just ice. It's really important to understand how they use it, if you're going to have a, a, a good dialogue. You also have to look at the very, very difficult interface between um, substance use that may produce psychosis and pre-existing mental health. The big thing we see, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, Josie, you would see this too, we hear it every day, trauma, trauma, trauma. We're seeing people, um, some of our clients have lived lives that are so, so deeply traumatic, um, multiple instances of trauma. Uh, it's hard to understand how they've ever managed to get through even one of them. And in a weird sort of way, I've had people describe that drug-taking is a process where they're re-traumatising themselves. And they know that. They're, they're almost in this cycle of being traumatised by, by family members, by society, and now by themselves. So your ability to understand post-traumatic stress, dissociative states, all these, these things that are a bit messy and untidy and, and, and not really well addressed, is so important. It's such an area that we can develop understanding in um, and, and have our clients appreciate it. Um, we work very much on a trauma-informed model. Have most people heard that phrase, trauma-informed? Uh, I'll talk a bit about it in a few minutes. Okay, so what are the treatment options? What are you going to do? Someone walks through the door and says, help, what are you going to offer? At the STP, our, our principal um, treatment on offer is counselling. We do have a few other things that we offer, um, but we certainly work in very well and encourage people to go to detox, even if it's not long enough, and to rehab. It's hard to get people into rehab. It's hard to get people into detox. Um, not so long ago, very few rehabs were taking people who were ice users. 
But you might be surprised at one of the reasons that people didn't take ice users. One of the side effects of ice use is to make people hypersexual. The last thing you want in a mixed sex rehab is all the, um, all the residents um, getting involved with each other. This was just traumatic and difficult for people to manage. Also, people might be a little bit aggressive, a little bit high strung, much easier to take those nice, quiet, alcohol-using, opiate-using people. Um, it's not so easy to make that distinction anymore and increasingly, thank goodness, um, rehabs and detoxes are opening up their beds to, to everyone. But not necessarily with training and understanding on board of what the issues for, their, for the people who are coming in to get that care need. And certainly not enough beds, my goodness. Um, we, we often fantasise that we're going to get one of those sleep pods. I don't know if you've ever seen a sleep pod. And, and, and park people in it for a few hours here and there just to have a kind of a mini detox or uh, some, some time out from their life. Pharmacotherapy. It's very tempting. In our minds, we've got the, the experience of methadone and all the other opiate um, treatment um, substances like um, buprenorphine, um, suboxone, it, it's become quite routinised to treat drug use with another drug. But it's problematic. All around the world now, people are starting to look at pharmacotherapies for stimulants. The UK has used um, amphetamine dosing for some time, uh, but there hasn't been a lot of research done on it. And we at the STP in, in Sydney and Newcastle um, are the only people in Australia permitted for, to have this off-label use of giving dexamphetamine um, to people who are ice users for the purposes of helping them get over their ice use. What does it address? It's problematic. If you're a fortnightly ice user, does it really help you to come in every day and get a dose? Possibly not. Maybe we're making the problem worse. So you mightn't be someone who could benefit. Are you a daily user? Possibly. Are you an older person? Do you have cardiovascular problems? Maybe not such a good idea to be giving you um, a mini heart attack every day. Um, what else could be a problem? When you take amphetamines, um, even if they're nicely dished out at the, at the pharmacy, you run the risk of stimulating people's psychosis because one of the things that that substance does is promote psychotic activity. So are you helping someone who may be troubled by psychosis? I think you can see it's a bit of a messy area. There are a number of other substances people have looked at. So bupropion, which you would all perhaps know has been used to stop people smoking. Zyban is the, the name some people might know it as. Provigil or modafinil, as it's otherwise known, is given to people for narcolepsy. Um, and it's also been touted as a possible medication. What's this space? I don't know. Um, but these are some of the pharmacotherapies people are talking about. At our service, um, we only have, actually have a very small number of people who are on dexamphetamine. Um, I think it's about nine people, and I, I think from my best knowledge of Newcastle, it's about nine or ten. Yeah, so it's not many. A lot of people come and say, I'm here to get on the decks. And we say, not so easy, not so fast. 
And very often, after some counselling, they say, actually, I don't want it, I don't need it, which is great. So um, what, we, what we know about that is, is very um, uncertain at this stage. We're trialling Lizdex amphetamine, a different form, which will be um, longer acting. It also won't give people the same high that Dex gives. It's quite problematic if you put the Dex dose too high, it can trigger um, sexual fantasies, desires to use. It isn't always protective against ice use. So possibly Lizdex might give less of a high. We don't know. But look for information, look for, look for things that are coming out about Lizdex and phenamine. We have to look at the complexity of the lives of many of our clients and it's really important to think about other services that we're going to bring in. I've already mentioned the importance of psychoeducation that could be given by a number of health professionals. I think there's a, um, a huge role for bringing in occupational therapists and social workers. Um, one of the reasons for that is the difficult situations our clients go back to when they're not with us. So they might be homeless. I've had three people cut off pensions and Centrelink this week because they didn't fill out the right form or the, the rules have changed. So this is hugely disturbing to them. So we need people, as well as counsellors, we need people out there who can advocate um, with housing, with Centrelink and give those sort of supports. One of the things that um, people are not also looking at or discussing is long-term use of ice is leading to neurological damage long term. And we don't know very much about that. There's very little done in the baseline MRI testing to measure just how damaged people's ability to think is. We do know there's been memory problems that people have had. Um, I have clients who tell me that when they take ice they feel brilliant and then in the afternoon or the next day when it's worn off, they can't add two and two. So there's huge impact on people's um, ability to do um, operational thinking in their head, huge impacts on people's decision-making capacity. The frontal lobes are in a bit of a mess. And these are all things that I think we, we don't even begin to know what we could do to help people. Neuroplastic Training, brain training might be an answer, something we're looking at at the moment. Um, but that, this is a long-term impact. Okay. I just wanted to say a bit about people, a bit more about people who come into the service. You'll be very surprised how many people come in who are teachers, doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, CEOs, elite sports people, alongside, uh, we, we, the number of clients we have coming to the service who have university degrees and even postgraduate qualifications is quite astonishing to us. It's really important for us to help those people because they've got wonderful minds and wonderful ideas and where they're at at the moment they're completely unable to use them. And this is perhaps for me one of the most alarming and scary parts. If there is an alarm about ice use, there's something about it that um, 
can be harmful to people that you would think would be able to protect themselves from problematic drug use. Um, and I'll just put that out there. The, the profile of the scab-covered um, person that, that I have seen clients who have the scabs, but a comment that people often make when they come to our services, it's hard to tell who the clients are because they look just like everybody else. And I want you to, to know, to not have any prejudgment about what a nice user and, a, and, a, and a, a person with complex problems related to their ice use might look like. I can't emphasise enough the, the, the process I talked to you about before. We need counselling. We need, we need to help the person reorganise their, their thinking and their feelings. We need some discussion and education about the drug and how it impacts the body. Nowhere really loudly in the health discussion is there much information about the third part of this triangle up here, which is when a person's released from hospital, what are we releasing them to? We don't have good aftercare. I see people put out in the street every day They've been through ED and PEC. Are they suicidal? No. Are they psychotic? No. Out you go. But they're not really going to any um, next stage. So what I'd like to see is a much bigger discussion about um, better aftercare from treatment. And I'd certainly like to see a bigger discussion about... Politically, we've got a bit of rhetoric about would you give that last apartment of housing house to the dear old lady who's been on waiting for that house for a long time, she's elderly, um, she's, she needs a place to live, or to the scabby junkie. You've all heard this discussion. In my view, it's a difficult decision because I believe they're equally entitled to social support. And there are benefits for all of us in helping both of those people and finding the money to house both of them. But it's really problematic that we haven't got enough resources out in the community to help people get through everyday living. One example that's really important to me is a number of my clients have eating disorders. If they didn't have them before they were an ice user, they sure have them as part of their ice using. They get quite fearful about preparing food. The, the ritual and the process that they have to go through to shop brings up anxiety in them. Um, how helpful would it be to have someone who could go to their house and, and just walk them through reconnecting with shopping, reconnecting with feeding themselves? Um, there are a few services out there who do it, not nearly enough. This, by the way, is one of the most important triangles. Certainly all the drug and alcohol workers will have come across it at some stage. This was Norman Zinberg's understanding that you can't just treat drugs with drugs, that there has to be a more global approach. And you will know that probably that how he came upon that was after Vietnam, many servicemen, I think 60% of American servicemen returning, um, were determined to have some dependence on heroin. Huge. So you can imagine they were all in a panic about people coming back to the United States. Weirdly, when those men got back to the United States, very few of them had any ongoing addiction. That 
and, and there's an argument now that the term addiction really is not a useful term. We, we certainly don't use it. That the drug itself was not so powerful. It wasn't more powerful than jobs that were waiting, girlfriends and wives who were waiting, supportive family members, hopeful futures. All of those things allow people to find resources inside themselves to overcome substance use. Really a powerful thing to think about when that word addiction comes up. So that's, that's from the 1980s, it still stands now. And, and, and what I tell people who come in and they want their, us to give a drug to their child to overcome their addiction is that actually having good internal resources, good um, social resources, add those together, it will trump any drug. It will trump any drug. People can find those resources very easily. So very quickly, who we are, primarily a counselling service with medical support. Our clients are aged 18 and over. All you have to be is aged 18 and over and a stimulant user to come. Um, and we don't charge anything. It's, we, at the moment, we don't even take Medicare, although this might be something in the future. And that's been wonderful because we've been able to help um, trafficked sex workers get um, some kind of um, sexual health screening and, and to provide a service to people who wouldn't... Um, sorry, sex workers. Did I say sexual health workers? Sex workers um, who, who are really at risk to come in and, and get looked after. We give priority to Indigenous clients and clients within the hospital framework. Okay, so this is what we offer. We have an intake interview that we, we can do over the phone or in person and we offer a, a drop-in clinic four mornings a week. People can just come to our door and buzz and come in. One of the most interesting things that we do is the S-check. This is an attempt to engage ICE users early in their using career. We're not telling them to stop using. We're saying, you've been using a little bit, you're a little bit concerned about what's happening in your brain and body, why don't you come in and see our GP and see our counsellors and just get a check up and see where you're at. And it's very popular. So the first session we would do an extended psychosocial interview. The second session will be with our GP who is really focused on looking for ice-related harms. So what do you think they might be? I haven't got chocolates to throw at you for a reward. Sorry? Malnutrition, absolutely. Malnutrition is one thing. What's another thing? Dehydration. And, and, and you don't hear about it very much, but huge problems with kidney function because of that. Cardiovascular, absolutely. This is the, one of the number one things we're looking at. We're seeing people with dangerous, dangerously high blood pressure who were in their healthy 20s. And we're certainly concerned if they're an injecting drug user because why? Endocarditis is really a risk for injecting drug users. We're also concerned about people smoking the pipe because um, they're not quite sure what damage they might be doing to their lungs. Skin. Skin does not do well with meth. It's whether you've got... Um, um, itch or 
as one of my clients, a very well-educated person told me, um, it was like an alien bug, that had, like some kind of parasite that had got into his skin and was running around his body and was trying to dig it out. Um, so that, that might be the skin problem you have. Uh, people have problems with sexual health. We ask people, when did you last get a checkup? Oh, just recently. I can't tell you how many people um, we have identified with STIs, including HIV and Hep C. So we have a number of people who come in and say that coming to SCheck has saved their life. We have also been able to determine in some women they were pregnant. One woman was completely in denial of the fact that she was pregnant, even though she looked pregnant to us, but she said it wasn't possible. Um, unfortunately for her, um, when the test results came back, she was well and truly pregnant. Um, so this is a kind of a really important health intervention. Another thing, have you heard of meth mouth? Mm -mm. Not good for the old fangs. Um, teeth seem to rot from the inside out on meth. And we're very lucky to have a service in St Vincent's that we can just shoot people upstairs and get some immediate um, dental health support. Um, not every service has got that. Oh, what have I done? I've killed it. Okay, so um, after, after the, the doctor has seen, the GP has seen the client, a follow-up appointment a week later is made for results to be given. And the counsellor will usually be present with the GP, so it's a supportive environment if the person's going to hear some information they'd rather not. Yeah. Um, just about, yeah. Um, so um, the, pretty much we've, we've covered all the, all the health issues and, and the follow-up. And then the final session is a, uh, the counsellor paints a picture for the client of where they're at in terms of their life and their goals and their harms and, and what strengths they've got to, to help them get on, back on a, a good path in life and, and what things they might need some support with. It's a very, what we call, strengths-based approach. Identifying what resources you've already got to get well. <coughs> Our clients give us really regular feedback that they find this process uplifting and encouraging. And from that point, they will go on to do counselling with us, like regular weekly counselling. The other thing we offer, which is unusual, is the link group. It's not an AA group. It's not a smart recovery group. It's a strengths-based group where people can come together and talk about a topic that's relevant to living a good life. Last week, my group did responsibility. We all had a good laugh about responsibility and how difficult it was to be responsible. We serve them food and people are encouraged by each other's stories. Very little discussion about drugs, by the way. It's very important for us to have that group because one of the side effects of ice use that is the most damaging of all is isolation. My little saying is, ice is the beginning of isolation. Because people become increasingly alienated from family, friends, 
workplace and agoraphobia is something we're seeing increasingly. I have clients who ring who were too overwhelmed by getting on the train to come in that day. So we'll do the counselling over the phone. Um, and they really describe this terror of leaving the house. Um, so this is, this is really an important thing, to connect people up and have a reason to get people out. One, one vote for pharmacotherapy on a daily basis is that many clients say they just wouldn't get out of bed and they wouldn't do anything if they didn't have to come and get their dose. So in some way, coming and picking up that daily dose is keeping them alive. I'm not sure if that's a good reason for doing it, but for them, it's a positive. So the, the link group is something that I would like to see replicated in other places. We provide hospital inpatient support. We go to PEC, we go to Caritas, which at St Vincent's is our mental health long stay place. And we go to um, ED on a regular basis. Did I say ED? PEC. Community action. We're very um, committed, and when we get more staff on board, which we will soon, we'll be going out into the community more and talking about what people can do. So, um, I've really covered a lot of those things. We don't have a particular counselling approach. You'll see a number up there. Maybe narrative therapy is probably the most commonly used. We're not so CBT. Doesn't seem to work all that well for our clients. We, we really like all of those um, dimensions of uh, therapeutic priority, harm minimisation, biopsychosocial approach, strengths-based, very much opposite to the medical model and very in line with the recovery model. You will recover, let's find out how. What resources do you have to recover? What are your vulnerable points that we can build strategies for you together and, and work that way? Trauma-informed, this is really important. Some therapies want to go excavating people's painful past and the person relives the trauma at times. Sometimes it's not a good place. And, and others, other therapies, flip over that altogether. So we've tried to find a happy medium. We're very invitational. We've, we're very um, encouraging of people who just drop in. It's chaotic and difficult for us but it makes people feel very needed. One aspect of ice use is that people tend to want what they want right now. And whilst there's a part of us that might resist and say, you can wait, um, it's probably a good idea initially to, to respond to that. Um, collaborative, culturally aware, um, we're very keen to support people from all cultures, and I don't just mean racial or, or language backgrounds, we have people from all over the world who come, um, but I talk about those microcultures of age, of social group, of socioeconomic group, they're all little mini cultures to consider. Uh, I said that near the end I would come to the indigenous element. Um, one of the most important recovery tools connection heals shame. You may have heard of a woman by the name of Brene Brown. If you haven't, I, I encourage you to rush to your um, devices and, and look up her TED talk. And she has the most wonderful explanation of how people who are ashamed and feeling 
less than human, less than entitled to the good things the world has to offer, not entitled to friendship or love, how that is only healed when somebody reaches out with affection or with acceptance. It's the connection with other people that heals that shame most powerfully. And this is where nurses do such a fantastic job. That's part of what you do. You connect with people. They see the look in your eyes when you're treating them of acceptance, of non-judgment, and that's such a powerful thing. In Indigenous culture, they really have, across all different communities, a wonderful understanding of how, this, how important this is. And in uh, one of the communities in the Northern Territory, um, this concept of Kanyini has, has become really well expressed. Other, other communities have versions of it. Not all of us have people to bond to. So we can bond to the universe, we can bond to the land, um, we can bond in a number of different ways. And that's certainly what we encourage our clients to do, to, to get out and embrace life again and really join in. Um, I've got a few um, phone numbers and important contacts that I'd like to just quickly put up. But apart from that, um, that's the end of what I have to offer you. Is um, an Australia-wide support line. It's actually located in the same building as us and they offer 24-hour support lines for substance use of all kinds, but there is one particularly for stimulants. I've left some brochures on the table over there for those of you who would like to know more about what we do and, and you might want to refer people. We have a Facebook page and a, a Twitter account, not that I have anything to do with those but you might be interested to direct other people to it. And any questions? Or would you rather, what, what's that time going? We'll only take a cup, like one, one question, because we're going to have the um, panel. Pan okay, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm having trouble hearing. Okay, basically I just wanted to um, make a comment regarding stimulant use that you touched upon in the military. Um, I've just served 17 years in the British Army and a further four in the Australian Defence Force. Uh, in 2005, um, random compulsory drug testing was brought in and automatically, obviously if you're found positive of this, you're discharged. But it's interesting because you touched upon heroin use in, I think it was Vietnam, basically. Now, currently in Afghanistan, um, the Afghan National Army, they, they smoke heroin, basically. And that is one of the fear factors of the, the soldiers out there. Um, so, look, we know that it possibly does happen, but it's, interestingly enough, nobody's tested positive for um, opioid abuse on return. So that's the other thing. Um, the other thing that I wanted to just touch upon is I currently work in trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy yeah. and I'm seeing a lot more referrals from polydrug users basically and I think it's based on and what you said there, there's a lot of underlying factors of abuse basically in dysfunctional yeah. childhoods in that basically. So yeah. thank you very much, that was good. Thank you. Um. Can you leave it to the panel? 
Yeah, thank, thanks very much again, Annabelle. I really appreciate the um, talk and the information that you've been able to convey across. Look, but we'll have questions at the panel time because I've got another speaker before then. Yep. And um, then we're going to, after the panel, we'll go into lunch. And I don't want to sort of um, cut into too much time with that, if that's okay. So thank you very much again. Everybody join me in thanking Annabelle. Thank you.